Hello, and welcome to Global Crossings, a podcast produced by the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. Thank you for joining us today for a discussion about the European Union, Ireland, and global affairs. Moderated by Dr. Robert Morrow, Director of the Global Leadership Institute, our three panelists will discuss Europe's economic and public health future, how Ireland leads European institutions, and what this means for the EU's relationship with the United States, China, and other states around the globe. Today's guests are Barry Koffer, a visiting research fellow at the Center for European Studies at Harvard University and a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Barry has previously worked at both the Irish and European parliaments and with a range of leading think tanks in Berlin, Brussels, and Westminster. Our next guest is Noel O'Connell, Executive Director of European Movement Ireland, Ireland's longest established not-for-profit organization dedicated to developing the connection between Ireland and Europe. And finally, Botan Faledi, a foreign policy expert and educator from the European Leadership Program at the Jesuit European Social Center Brussels. He specializes in transatlantic relations with special regard to hostile influence campaigns in the Euro-Atlantic countries. Enjoy the podcast with additional opening remarks by Leisha Moore, Consul General of Ireland to New England. Okay, great. Well, welcome everybody. Um, I appreciate you taking the time on this uh, Tuesday afternoon um, to join us. I'm dialing in from uh, Boston College. I'm in the, the Cray Research Library where we usually host our fireside chats. And it's, um, this is our second um, virtual fireside chat. And I'm pleased to, to welcome a, a very interesting panel discussion. Um, on the European Union, Ireland, and global crossings. I think this is uh, going to be an, an, a, it's going to be a cracking discussion. Really, to be absolutely honest with you, these are uh, three very interesting and, and engaging um, people. The topic of today's conversation is in theme with what we've been working on here at the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College, and that is U.S.-European relationships and Ireland's pivotal role um, in the nature of those um, relationships. Um, before I introduce the panel and the panelists, um, I'd like to welcome Leisha Moore, the Consul General um, of Ireland to New England, uh, who's going to um, say a few words um, about this session. Um, and Leisha is dialing in from Dublin. Leisha, over to you. Thank you very much, Bob. Uh, thank you for inviting me to say a few words. Uh, I know that we've got three very interesting panelists and uh, we're going to want to get on to the discussion. So I'll be brief and just say a few words. Um, I'm really delighted that Boston College and Bob Morrow are, are hosting today's discussion because for Ireland, the Ireland's relationship with the EU is really important. And Ireland's relationship with the US, of course, is, is really important as well. So for us in Ireland, it's, it's really important that the overall EU-US relationship is a really, really strong one. And one of the things that, that has struck me since arriving in Boston last year is that, I mean, obviously there's, there's very strong recogn name recognition of Ireland in Boston for, for obvious reasons. Um, and then there's also speaking to my, my uh, fellow EU colleagues, EU consuls general, there's, uh, you know, people know Ireland, they know the UK, they know France, uh, well, not the UK anymore, but they know France, they know Germany, they, they know the individual countries of Europe. But I think that there's less, um, a kind of a, 
that's of a, a recognition of the EU. I mean, people know that the EU is there and it's a thing and that it exists, but I don't get the impression that they see myself, my French, my German and my Italian colleagues as the EU collectively. And coming from a previous post where I was based in Dublin and where I was working on EU issues, that was something that really struck me that, um, you know, uh, people people in, in the US, I think, have kind of a less of uh, an in-depth understanding of what the EU is about and what it does. And in some ways, you know, that's not surprising. The EU is a complex place. Uh, it, it does complex things. So it's just, uh, it, it's really great to have today's discussion where um, we can do a bit, a bit more of an in-depth discussion on the, the current and the future uh, developments and, and challenges in the EU and what this means for the overall transatlantic relationship and what it means for, for Ireland as well going forward. Um, and uh, as Bob said, uh, the Irish Consulate and uh, Boston College have been doing a number of these transatlantic fireside chats. The first one was in person at the Cray Library with Ambassador uh, Mulhall. And then, of course, no, no sooner had we done our first in this series than the pandemic struck. But we were very pleased that we've been able to do virtual fireside chats because, uh, you know, um, it's, it's more important at this time. Uh, it's more important than ever to to keep these connections strong in whatever way we can. So I'm really grateful that Boston College is doing this work in, in making sure that uh, we are bringing a deeper understanding of that transatlantic relationship uh, here uh, in the US especially. So look, I just want to leave it there. I just want to say thank you to Bob for hosting and to the panelists for joining it. And I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thanks all very much. Great, thank you very much, uh, Lisa. Really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we know you're away on vacation right now and uh, August vacation time is precious. Um, I'm very excited, obviously. I've already said this about today's conversation. Uh, we have three great panelists who have um, immense knowledge about the European Union and its global relationships, its relationships with the United States and its relationship with Ireland and how those relationships relate to one another. It's, um, as you can imagine, it's very, very complex and we'll hear a lot more about that. At Boston College, GLI, we've been focused on the EU-US relationship um, in earnest since 2016. Uh, the Aaron English College Football Classic I uh, saw Boston College play in Dublin, and at that time, we began a relationship with Ireland Gateway to Europe um, to discuss the transatlantic business um, relationship. That has expanded for us to encompass all aspects of um, societal relations, from business to culture to arts and politics. I think today's conversation is mainly going to focus on the political aspects of the EU-US relationship um, and Ireland's role in that, but we will also hear about the economic and social aspects of this relationship as well. Uh, would, it's my pleasure to um, give you a very brief introduction on the panels, and each will uh, tell us a little bit more about what they're doing um, and, and why they're here today. Uh, we will first hear uh, from Noelle O'Connell, Executive Director of the European Movement Ireland. Uh, Noelle and I first met in Dublin uh, last year. Um, and have been discussing ways to highlight the Irish-EU relationship um, in the United States. We will also hear from Barry Koffler, a visiting research fellow um, at the Center for European Studies at, at Harvard. Uh, Barry was in Boston uh, up till about March, I think, when uh, things became a little bit hairy on um, travel and uh, had to return to Dublin. So if, uh, it's, I'm sure, Barry, for yourself, it must have been very difficult to leave um, the prestige of, of Harvard um, and um, 
although you, you, you're in a comfortable environment now and, and you, we can let you tell that story as well. And finally, we'll be hearing from Botan Fideli, um, the Secretary for Leadership. I'm sorry, I think I might have mangled your last name there. Um, it's from the Jesuit European Social Center. Uh, Botan and I first met uh, about two years ago when Boston College was working on a project on cybersecurity uh, in Europe, and, and Botan's based out of Brussels. So he's, we're going to get a real insider's um, view uh, from Botan. Um, as an American, um, and I'm born and raised in the United States, I'm educated in, um, in the United States, and I'm, I'm, I also identify as Irish and Irish citizen. I've always found the European Union a bit confusing and, and complicated. There are many different um, institutions within the European Union, some to an American ear sound very uh, similar in their, in their name and in their purpose. Um, in some ways for the American audience, um, dealing with the European Union is some of the challenges that Europeans have in understanding American politics and our uh, separation of powers and, and our federated system. So we're hopefully going to be able to clear some of this confusion up um, and, and discuss why uh, some of these institutions are quite important to the relationships today. Um, Noelle, I think we're going to begin with you. And um, I hope that maybe you could start first by giving us an overview of what the European Movement Ireland is and, and, and what you do. Um, and then also maybe discuss the ways in which the European Union is currently relating um, to Ireland. And, and there are a lot of different areas that we can address here. Um, so I'm going to let you highlight some of the most important ones. But I think obviously uh, something that we've been quite curious about and interested in here in Boston is Brexit and, and, and what that means um, in the EU-Irish uh, relationship and how the United States relates to that. Great. Thank you very much, Bob. Um, and I'd like to thank um, Bob, uh, Leisha and Boston College for the opportunity today to address you all on the EU, Ireland and, and transatlantic relationships. So as Bob said, um, um, my name is Noelle O'Connell and as the Executive Director of European Movement Ireland, who are we, what are we about? Well, essentially founded in 1954, um, for over 65 years, we have been Ireland's longest established independent, uh, not-for-profit voluntary membership organization whose primary objective is to build bridges between Ireland, Europe, the EU, its institution, and above all, its peoples. So how do we do this? Well, primarily through a series of communications, engagement, campaigns, membership, outreach. And as a membership organization, we partner with members and stakeholders such as uh, Boston College, multinationals, uh, government departments, SMEs, uh, we work very closely with the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Department of the Taoiseach. We also uh, work closely with the European Commission, the European Parliament, on encouraging debate and conversation and dialogue about the EU, about Ireland's place in, in Europe, and how we can make it, make it all better. So that brings us very neatly uh, to our topic today. So um, very conscious of, of, of time. Um, Bob, I think, has given me an extra minute because I am from Blarney. So I, I'm sorry in advance. We have the gift of the gab. It's very hard to shut us up once we get started. But looking more broadly at Ireland and its place in Europe, um, Brexit, the future of Europe, from a geographical sense, and I think that we kind of have to start off uh, there, we are uniquely placed. My former history professor in college used to say that 
Ireland is a small island of a somewhat larger island of a somewhat larger landmass stuck in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with literally for many of us Boston being that next parish over and that geographical uniqueness has seen us navigate and shape our future um, in, in a way that, that many of us wouldn't have thought possible. So rather than delve too far back into the annals of time, I'm just maybe going to focus from 2016 onwards, which for us on this side of the pond, all changed, changed utterly. And what I'm referring to is, of course, on the 23rd of June with Brexit, when the UK, our, our closest neighbour, our, our closest ally and friend, and part of the same class, let's not forget, the UK, Ireland and Denmark, we all joined uh, what was then the EEC at the same time, um, voted for Brexit, voted, uh, which was quite a seismic result, uh, to vote to leave the EU. So whilst respecting the results, absolutely nobody in Ireland wanted Brexit. So, you know, and to stress and reiterate, and I think that, might, that is important, there is practically zero appetite here in Ireland to follow the UK example and vote to leave the EU. For example, since 2013, we in European Movement Ireland have been commissioning an independent polling company to carry out sentiment surveys across the country on how people viewed things like, like Brexit, like Ireland's place in the EU, like international trade deals, uh, like the Green Deal, and to get a sense of where people uh, fell and what their, their consensus was on those. And essentially from an all time high last year at 93% when Brexit was at its, uh, at its height, Ireland remaining a committed and active and engaged member of the EU, support and sentiment has never gone below 80%. This year it stood at 84% of people in Ireland, in Ireland wanting us to remain in the European Union. Um, so from an Irish perspective, being part, being an, a, a committed and active member of a larger union, of a larger club, it amplifies our voice, it enhances our sovereignty and gives us a global presence and increases our footprint internationally. So the Brexit shock um, essentially forced Ireland to, stink, the, to think strategically about how we build alliances, uh, about how we uh, perhaps move out of the shadow of, of uh, big Brother about how we further develop and cement that transatlantic bridge because in Ireland we don't see it as binary, we don't see it as Boston or Berlin, we see ourselves very much being at the heart of Europe but being very much connected uh, transatlantically. Um, Ireland only transi transitioned from being a net receiver to a net contributor to the EU budget in 2013 and at that stage Ireland held the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU when the uh, transatlantic uh, trade investment partnerships and the TTIP negotiations were going on. And in the growing necessity to expand in tangible and real and concrete terms, Ireland's international footprint has seen us work very hard and constructively to boost our soft power in a variety of ways. Um, you know, to, to have that tangible influence, if, if we recall quite recently, the Ireland uh, successfully secured a seat on the United Nations Security Council, which was a fantastic result for, for a small country. In addition, uh, the Irish Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, uh, somewhat against, uh, against the odds, um, was voted president of the Eurogroup. 
um, the Commissioner for Trade, who will be, um, who I'm sure will be familiar to, to the audience, uh, is an Irishman, Commissioner Phil Hogan. The first Vice President of the European Parliament is Mairead McGuinness. The European Ombudsman is Emily O'Reilly, uh, an, an Irish woman. So the Irish footprint in terms of our institutional leverage is strong and growing and is active and, and, and engaged. And that's really, really important and it's very welcome. However, whether, whether the EU, um, former French president uh, Charles de Gaulle famously once said in relation to France, how do you govern a nation with over 246 types of cheese? But equally so with the European Union and the complexity of now sadly 27 member states, 446 million inhabitants, 24 official languages. And I think that is really important when for a US audience to bear in mind the, the complexity of trying to get consensus and compromise amongst the EU is never straightforward. It's never easy, but it is hugely vital to the EU being constructively able to, to act. Because in the past, the EU tended to fit crises into its somewhat bureaucratic processes, its treaty-based rules. And in other words, it tried to adapt crises to its way of working rather than adapting to the crisis at, at hand. So the, the EU's framework for the future, the policy program that the new uh, European Commission president, the von der Leyen Commission is committed to, it's ambitious. But however, with that ambition, it is rarely absent from complexity and the breadth and depth of the issues that the EU needs to address, be it from economic recovery, climate policy, rule of law, democratic backsliding, provide space for both disagreement and dissent. And the emergence of COVID has of course created a sense of uncertainty. Uh, notwithstanding a slow and somewhat rocky start, um, the EU has, has, has assumed, I think for many, uh, that, that position of best supporting actor. So what do I mean by that? There has been no uh, template, there was no off-the-shelf manual for how the EU collectively was to deal with the COVID pandemic, but as an essential element to the European recovery is ensuring Europe's future health. So be that the EU's crisis management in, uh, instruments such as the integrated political crisis response, and the Stockholm-based European Centre for Prevention and Disease Control are critical. So as we sadly know, uh, viruses respect uh, no borders and health is a global issue. And it is important that the EU considers our international responsibility in that regard. Looking at the economy from an EU perspective, the European Commission's introduction of a temporary recovery instrument, and we love our acronyms, uh, known as Next Generation EU, that embedded the EU's uh, multi-annual financial framework, um, the, the budget, and it's of incredible importance because what that does, it enables the mobilization and the investment and improves the odds, therefore, of achieving a symmetric recovery, which underpins uh, social cohesion. And, you know, there was a lot of debate of the frugal four, which then became more of the frugal one um, and, and versus some of the Corona nine countries, those countries arguing for greater, greater funds. 
Um, and given that it was the second longest council meeting ever uh, of all the, the leaders uh, trying to come to an agreement, but hopefully that budget debate and that disagreement will, will be worth uh, the long-term uh, difficulties because it will have achieved a solution that the twin green and digital transitions are, are a fundamental component to the EU's economic recovery, renewable energy and digital infrastructure are equally important in driving employment and enterprise. And from an Irish perspective, where does Ireland fit into this? Uh, into this? Well, in terms of our welfare and our engagement, and, and to follow on from what Leisha said in her opening remarks, Ireland was very uh, strongly to the fore of advocating for a grant-based recovery system somewhat similar to the proposal of the French President Macron, and that would enable those countries that were particularly affected by the pandemic protect their economies. Um, and ensuring the economic stability of the EU more broadly is a, is a strong collective report that underpins and is indicative of Ireland's, Ireland, where Ireland sees itself in the EU. But in terms of the EU, Ireland, the US uh, and the global crossings more broadly, uh, the, the changing geopolitical global order has somewhat necessitated the EU having, having a closer look um, to itself because no longer can Europe afford to rely on history, afford to rely on perhaps the, the way things were, uh, the, the uh, special relationships, the strategic alliances, the traditions that characterize things. We are living in a, in a changed geopolitical uh, global order. It is very fast paced, it is unprecedented. And that is why um, the European Union is going to have to have this conversation, which is part of the Conference of the Future of Europe debate. But I am hopeful that Ireland will input into it and that equally I am hopeful and confident of that shared future that there is a responsibility on us all to help create for the better. Thank you. Thank you, Noelle. That uh, does a very comprehensive um, overview of where the EU is in relation to Ireland right now. I, I, I will just say for the um, audience, uh, the participants in this, uh, there is a question and answer function we will welcome. We do quite welcome questions and answers. So please, if you do have a question at any point, just pop it in there. And I'll be sure to get it out to the panelists. Uh, Barry, I think I'd like to turn to you next. Um, you've had a very interesting, I think, uh, academic history and, and a personal one. Um, you're a European, you're an Irish European, you're here in the United States, and you were working in a center for European studies in Boston. So you, you I think, probably have a different perspective on the European Union. I know, I, you know, I spent a decade in, in Ireland uh, teaching Irish politics, and that gave me a different and new perspective on both Irish politics and American politics that uh, you know, you, I don't think you can get without having um, made those kind of crossings. Um, but, you know, in some of our conversations in the run-up to this, I'd, I'd like to follow up on something that Noel mentioned. He said that the, the way things were, Ireland can't rely on the way things were. W what do you think about that? I mean, you um, and I have talked a little bit about the changing nature of Irish politics and how that might impact Ireland's relationship with the European Union. I was wondering if you could pick up on that a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm talk about the current government and what we might expect to see from, from future governments um, in, in relation to the EU. Cool. Thanks. Thanks very much, Bob. It'd be my pleasure to do that. <clears throat> I'd also just like to thank you very much for this kind of invitation. It's a real pleasure to be with you guys this afternoon. 
Um, I did indeed have to swap the prestige of Harvard, as Bob said, on, on St. Patrick's Day, just to rub it in, I flew back to Ireland. But I had the pleasure of enduring the lockdown in an equally prestigious place in lovely Dumouriez, so I did okay. So to pick up on what you said, Bob, um, I usually split my time between Cambridge in the UK and Florence in Italy. Um, I grew up in Brussels, in fact, where my parents worked. So I enjoy a multitude of different angles and I've worked in the Irish and European parliaments as well as my academic background. So to build on Noel's cheesy Charles de Gaulle quote, um, another quote that came to mind is one that's attributed to this former Secretary of State, um, Madeleine Albright, when she said that in order to understand the EU, you need to be either a genius or French. And I agree that it's not straightforward, but with patience, you can get there. Uh, and one important factor to understand, which is what you're touching on, Bob, in your introduction to me, is that as well as the EU level politics and machinations that I think the other speakers are going to very effectively unpack, the EU is also this mixed bag of 27 domestic political contexts. I will still say 27 and a half because of the peculiar current status of the UK and its influence over European politics. So I'm going to provide a very brief bit of context to Ireland's current geopolitical position by kind of zooming in on what's happening in Ireland at the moment. So on the 27th of June, more than four months after the last Irish general election in February, Colin Brophy, who is a Fine Gael TD or MP from South West Dublin, voted for Fianna Fáil's Micheál Martin to become Taoiseach, Prime Minister. And this moment formally brought to an end the so-called era of civil war politics in Ireland, at least in parliamentary terms. As many of you will know, each of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the traditional dominant parties in Irish politics, trace their origins to the opposing sides of a bitter civil war, which was fought about a century ago. And it's a testament to the truly uh, unusual times that we're experiencing that, that Noel spoke about, that this important shift in Irish politics is at best third in the billing when it comes to matters of political, economic and social importance because Ireland is currently facing about three major interrelated shifts that are reshaping its place in the world, its relations with the EU, its near neighbourhood, and indeed the US. Namely, our shared COVID challenge, this aforementioned political realignment that I just mentioned, and indeed Brexit, which is very much still a thing. And in the time allowed to me, I'm going to speak really briefly to these three points. So firstly, on COVID, Noel had, had indeed mentioned this, the Stockholm-based European Centre for Disease Control said only yesterday that the recent trends in Ireland are not promising. And although nothing, this is nothing on what most US states are enduring, um, Ireland initiated its first regional lockdown over the, the weekend as the reproduction rate for the virus for the first time nudged higher than the UK. There's been 1,700 deaths attributed, 27,000 cases, which is about 500, for 100,000 of the population, which is about a third of the US average, or about a fifth of somewhere like Florida, to give it a bit of context. Secondly, of three, the new government, the end of civil war politics and the new Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Green coalition has gotten off to a fairly bumpy start with a ministerial resignation, a handful of high profile U-turns and dismissals in its first weeks. 
Meanwhile, and this is where, for anyone interested in watching Ireland and its development and its relations with the rest of the world, I think an interesting element is this realignment sees Sinn Féin as the largest party in opposition for the first time, with 37 seats far ahead of its nearest smaller rivals. And aside from presenting something of a new dynamic to parliamentary politics, Sinn Féin have traditionally been hostile to the European project in resisting treaties and in subsequent manifestos and pronouncements. And so to build on what Noel was saying, as the European movement and Eurobarometer and many others have shown, Ireland is among the most Euro-enthusiast countries in the history of countries, you know, in excess of 80% support traditionally for EU membership. So I feel that something will have to give when it comes to Sinn Féin and Europe, uh, whichever direction that might be. And this may become interesting to watch in the years to come. The final substantive piece I want to speak about briefly is to build on what Noel was saying lastly, and this is with respect to the UK's protracted withdrawal, which, as I've said, continues to be a thing. So Prime Minister Johnson is reeling from a poor performance under COVID and a strong leader of the opposition for the first time in ages. Trust in government in the UK is at a low ebb, according to YouGov and other polling agencies, and the gap between the parties is narrowing, although the government still enjoys a massive parliamentary majority. So why does this matter? Brexit is meant to be in its concluding phase, as we know, but little progress has been reported. And the ruling Tory party still includes extremist Brexiteers who may use the turmoil of COVID as political cover for leaving the bloc without a deal. And this could obviously have major negative impacts for Ireland. And the UK's departure could, of course, give Ireland an even more important role as the transatlantic bridge linking the US and the EU, but it could also isolate Ireland in a number of key areas that have been well documented, not least when it comes to taxation and the thorny issue of the Apple money and state aid rules. So in conclusion, in the week of the death of the great John Hume, who will be unusual for us not to mention and acknowledge, we must not forget that prosperity, social cohesion, and indeed peace will all be imperiled if we see a botched Brexit. The US played a major role in building and sustaining the peace in Ireland, and there's a multitude of ways that this could become undone without being overly alarmist. And there may yet be an important role for the better part of Irish America to contribute once again to the betterment of Irish politics. So I think it's really important for an American audience to be interested in current Irish EU and Irish US relations. So I thank you for your attention. And I'll stop here, looking forward to the discussion. Thanks. Great, thanks, Barry. Um, and you're absolutely right to um, bring up the debt that um, we all owe uh, John Hume on the, on the European project. Um, it was a key part of how he approached the, uh, the peace process. And perhaps we'll return to um, some of that uh, later in the conversation um, if, if we have a few moments to, to take a look at it. Um, I remind the audience again, there's a Q&A function. If you have questions uh, for the panelists, we'd be happy to pass them along. So uh, do take a moment and um, submit us our questions. If you've ever been to a fireside chat at the Cray Library, you know uh, that they are very open in um, affairs and uh, people are free to ask questions. But right now I'd like to turn to our third panelist, uh, Botan. Um, uh, Botan has an insider's view, um, I think, of, of Brussels. And, and Barry was um, there talking about um, civil war politics and how that has changed in Ireland and what that means for Ireland's relationship uh, with the European Union. 
Often when we think about um, international or global affairs, we forget to examine the relationship of domestic and local politics um, in that. And we shouldn't really. I mean, here in Boston, um, it is kind of the um, uber rule of politics that all politics is, is ultimately local. Um, and in fact, we're always reminded that here at Boston College, our main library is the, uh, the, the Tip O'Neill uh, Library. So, but um, Botan, what do, you, what do you see happening within the individual EU states that's having an impact on uh, the EU institutions and how it's relating to um, Brexit or the COVID process or, or some of these other important issues um, that are having, uh, you know, impacts on how, how Europe is responding to global crises. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Bob, and thanks for the invitation. Um, actually, I really uh, feel honored to be surrounded solely by English, native English speakers. That's uh, unusual in a Brussels setting. Um, I must say that uh, indeed the EU structure is very complex, as you said in the introduction, and um, member states are only half of this complexity. And the other half of this complexity is, as I usually call it to my students, is the inter-institutional war that is ongoing in Brussels since the foundation of, of, the, of the European communities. So it really is an inter-institutional war uh, that I could only describe in the terms of Game of Thrones. So that's something that uh, you, you just don't see European Union on the side of any building. It says European Commission, European Parliament. Uh, it's, it's not the European Union that you find on the header of an email. Uh, and it really is interesting uh, how this is developing. And that is actually something that I could very much relate uh, to the um, words um, pronounced before, because the EU was created as a post-war peace vehicle. So it was created to settle interior European peace and uh, international relations of the European states themselves. And that's why nowadays we face an extremely high challenge because of the outside pressures that Noel uh, shortly mentioned. So everything that comes from the outside. Um, and in this case, Brexit is unfortunately becoming an external uh, foreign policy question as well as a security question. Or the China uh, dilemma of the EU uh, is an external question. Um, Russia, United States, EU transatlantic relations uh, this is something that the EU is not really well equipped to deal with, and the structure was never created to deal with. Uh, and that's why you see this struggling uh, in the last years, uh, why we are where we are now uh, without much solution uh, in the window. Um, so this, this is the, um, just a short note on the, on the, on the history. Um, and then, well, I see that the Brexit is really showing us um, how it is to be left alone on the um, theater of war in the, in the uh, scene of, of, of world politics. It is just sad to see the UK um, facing the Skripal case, uh, facing all the Chinese influence campaigns, even if we know less about that than those uh, being practiced in the United States, which come to more transparency due to the congressional uh, investigations. Um, so it, it is, um, a reminder of why the EU was created also as a security vehicle. Um, I would say that uh, we will see new fault lines coming up and that is something which is extremely important for Ireland as well because Ireland was also oscillating between the frugal four 
and the other camps in the, during the multiannual uh, financial framework negotiations. Um, the same will go on with the China question. We see that the Western European countries and member states are getting less and less um, friendlier with China in a way, more openly criticizing or banning Huawei for the sake. Uh, while in East and Central Europe, uh, China is still seen as an economic partner uh, without political consequences. Um, in, in the Eurobarometers, you see this division. Uh, the same is uh, true with the Russia question. Um, and, and we shouldn't forget that uh, Slovakia, one of the smallest member states, uh, was just uh, sending home three Russian diplomats this week uh, because most probably of the murder case assassination of a political activist in Berlin last year in Germany. So this is an ongoing fault line. There are pro-Russian states and uh, very critical states of Russia like Poland. Um, and now we see the United States EU alliance, the transatlantic alliance tested. And I would say that the last 20 years, the tests that we received through the uh, conflicts in the Middle East was nothing compared to the next 20 years that we are facing because there is the new race to the space. Uh, we are not talking much about it. It's extremely important. There is the cyberspace and how the European Union is actually uh, planning to create its own cyberspace without the United Kingdom, member of the uh, Five Eyes Alliance, now uh, finally the continent and potentially Ireland being left alone. Um, and there is also the question of the COVID and the reorganization of all the um, supply chains, etc. Um, so as a last, Word, um, the EU is facing very similar challenges to the United States and in the next two to three years we will see whether we can cope with them together or we will find very competitive solutions which will be or would be detrimental to both sides of the Atlantic. Thank you and uh, I'm looking very much forward to the discussion. Great, thanks, Botan. I, I kind of want to pick up on that, um, and I'll, I'll put this out to kind of all panelists, but Botan, you might have um, a special insight into this. The last thing you were discussed there were the similarities in the challenges that are faced by the United States and the European Union, yet we are seeing um, a divide between the EU and the US. Um, there is less collaboration than one might hope, I think, for, uh, and there is more maybe competition between the states, or, or perhaps that isn't the case. Maybe uh, you could illuminate that for us. Um, and you know, maybe as we investigate that particular question, Botan, um, and you might want to do this right off the top. We did actually have a question come in from a, one of the um, one of the, the viewers about the the green government um, that exists in Ireland. Um, and what that means for EU policy post-COVID. Um, and we were only talking this morning um, via internet about the Green Deal that is um, launched in, has been launched in the European Council. And um, I, you know, have been doing a little bit of research on it. And, and there is a short video up on the, uh, the Council's website. Um, and it's interesting to me that the narrator has an Irish accent. Maybe it's just pure coincidence, uh, but I, I found that particularly interesting. But Boda, maybe you could um, talk a little bit about that first, um, the, the Green Deal, uh, some of the strategic objectives of, of that, and, and how, maybe how that relates to this larger question about the global challenges and the way the EU and the US are, are facing them. All right. Um, well, the Green Deal is really in the making um, and it has a very, very long horizon uh, going up to 2050. 
Um, so, of course, the milestones are much closer and the first 10 years until uh, 2030 uh, are to be planned more precisely at the action items. And this is including um, a complete overhaul of the European industry and especially the European in energy production. Uh, as more than 70% of the EU carbon emission is coming from the energy sector, this is something uh, that is the major target of the Green Deal. How can we uh, push for much more renewables um, and, and how the complete energy generation will be transformed in the next 10 years. Um, this is also going to the agricultural sector and, uh, and well, transportation, um, or the, the uh, common agriculture policy of the, of the European Union. I would say that the 1 trillion um, euro that is planned to be spent in the next 10 years is not such a large uh, money. It is a huge amount. Um, but still, compared to the objectives that are set out, uh, I'm just quite sure that we will still be lacking some funds uh, and the member states will still have to put together and put together resources uh, to cover this transformation. This is about to make the European Union uh, a front runner uh, in the Green Deal uh, methodology in the green industry transformation. Um, of course, the first one who is, you know, the first one who gets these sectors transformed is setting up the rules potentially at an international scale. Um, so there is a competition again between the US and the EU, potentially Japan, China, um, who is in particular sectors, should that be the wind turbines, the solar energy panels or whatever, um, the batteries in the, in the rechargeable um, personal vehicles. Um, this is a strategic question for all the industries. Whether we can create a common space for that uh, or some joint common industry, uh, at least on a European scale, and that has not been the case in the last decades. And there were terrible cases where uh, global champions were uh, obstructed by the European legislation. It is unfortunate seen by now from the outside as we get China as a competitor uh, very, very close to the EU. Um, so I would say that um, um, the Green Deal is a very practical tool. Uh, it's also something that's very popular for the time being inside Europe. So that's something how this commission of von der Leyen is trying to reach out uh, to the people and uh, getting a popular voice uh, among the voters and the supporters, which is actually very smart as a political tool. Uh, but we know that political communication and political reality is two very separate entity. Um, so I would still give some time, at least a year, to the Green Deal to see uh, how much money finally is uh, funneled in to these funds and uh, what's the final decision. As we have seen, they were struggling very much, the member states with the MFS and even the recovery fund, um, whether these are grants, jointly borrowed money from the financial markets or um, just credits among the member states. Uh, these are very different tools and um, politically very divisive currently inside Europe. Yeah, I, uh, th thank you, Botan. I want to open that um, same question up to kind of Noel and Barry, but maybe with a specific focus on, on Ireland. Does Ireland have a particular leadership capacity here? I mean, you know, in, in from, you know, Noel, is there uh, a policy kind of imperative to do this? And then Barry, maybe is there a is there a governmental or a political power imperative to do this? Is this a, a point of differentiation uh, that the parties could use um, in the internal politics of, of Ireland to kind of affect the EU, EU policy? Sure, um, Bob, 
Well, I think in terms of the Irish perspective, um, as, as Barry outlined, um, we have a new government. Uh, the, the Greens are, are parties to that government. And the programme for government and its ambitions are probably uh, the greenest that, that, that we have seen. So they're, they're really, really ambitious setting out a very green and environmentally sustainable roadmap um, for some goals and objectives that the government in, its, in its, its life hopes to achieve and deliver on. Notwithstanding that level of ambition, um, the challenge I think is going to be reconciling that with some of the realities um, of how we go about it in terms of renewables, but we also equally have a very strong agri-food, agri-business sector. How do we how do we balance emissions um, versus the versus the goals that, that we have committed to achieving? Um, and from um, an EU perspective more broadly, as, as Botand uh, very, uh, uh, very eloquently outlined, the challenges at an EU level um, are going to be profound because obviously um, it, is a, it, is a, it is a very um, a integral part of what the EU is hoping to achieve um, over the next number of years. But it's very complex from the outset because we have variations in infrastructure, natural resources, levels of import energy dependency in the different member states. So that is all playing out in how we go about achieving a collective uh, focus. And one thing to, to touch upon, and I think both Barry and Botan mentioned it as well, in terms of the communications, I referenced that uh, poll that we did. And interestingly, this year in Ireland, we asked the question, about whether people in Ireland were aware of the European Commission and the EU's goal to ad address the challenges of climate change through the Green Deal. With, um, and the response came back that only 43% were aware that it even existed. So how do, we, how do we marry the two of those? But notwithstanding that, I think uh, both domestically here and at a European level, um, it is the most ambitious, uh, you know, focus on climate change initiatives on the European Green Deal that I think we've seen in many years. So how, how do we go about um, delivering on those goals uh, is going to be one to watch out for, but certainly the level of ambition is there and equally at a national domestic level, it is very clearly imprinted through all levels of the program for government. Great, thanks. Uh, Barry, what, what's your take on this? I mean, is there a, a domestic uh, political issue here that can, can play out on, on the European stage, especially as kind of, as, as you've laid it out, as, as Irish politics is now being kind of remade um, away mm -hmm. from what, the way you put it away from civil war politics uh, to something else? Yeah, I'm happy to comment on this question, which is a good one. And I'm going to zoom right down to the parish pump of, of Irish politics, which I learned all about in my, my years working in the Dáil. And much like Tip O'Neill, Bob, like you were saying, all politics is very, very local in Ireland. With respect to the Greens, right, who are the third element of our current um, innovative coalition, they have 12 seats and they extracted uh, an enormous amount of influence, or they exerted an enormous amount of influence over the programme for government, like Noel just said. This had been a learning experience for the Greens, which for anyone who watches Irish politics in 2011, the last time they were in government, admittedly it was the government that had meted out and agreed the terms of the country's bailout with the Troika. The Greens were crushed in 2011 and they lost each of their six TDs. 
So in that learning experience, they drove a pretty hard bargain, and this is reflected in the, uh, in the government agreement. It's very ambitious. What I would also say is just two uh, kind of simple things about Irish politics. The Greens of the three parties have already shown themselves to be the, I won't say the most unstable, but certainly unstable of the three government parties. Uh, the whip has been taken from a number of members, including a minister, for voting against the government. And there is already kind of a, a successor in waiting to the current leader that I think if I were to put a bet on when the next kind of internal crisis is going to happen in a party in Ireland, I believe it will be with the Greens and the compromises they'll have to make in this government. And then finally, to really pour just a, a cup full of cold water on the programme for government, senior experts only this week were saying that the targets are not just ambitious with respect to a 7% cut in carbon emissions year on year, they're uh, essentially unobtainable. So it's fine to be ambitious, but uh, leading thinkers, commentators and academics are saying that they're, um, it's unlikely that they will be achieved. So I, I support the greener parts of the, the um, programme for government personally, but there is a lot of commentary to say that they, they may be out of reach of this government. Uh, thanks, Barry. I just want to follow up on, on one point came in from um, the audience here. Uh, one of the, the participants would like to kind of get a little bit more of your thoughts. Uh, and now we're going to get we're going to get deep into Irish politics uh, here for a moment. Um, they, they essentially are asking, you know, is the uh, alliance between Fine Gael and Fine Fáil, um, a, a merit an expedient one? Um, or is it actually, uh, you know, um, and, and in an effort to just kind of maintain power and keep Sinn Féin and other parties out of power? Or is it truly something that has reset Irish politics away from kind of the Civil War model? I mean, is this a temporary kind of change, do you think, or uh, a more of a permanent one? Is that at myself, Bob, is it? Cool. Yeah, I, I don't want to hog the hog the space, and I apologise to Botan for digging deep into the minutiae of Irish politics. I think this is an extremely good point uh, that the questioner uh, raises, and I, I referred to the end of civil war politics myself, but it is absolutely a jaded cliche, which I which I use uh, advisedly. Civil war politics ended some time ago in Ireland, and still to, to understand Irish politics, one, the first lesson is to understand the distinctions between these two parties, which from the outside are seemingly very similar, but the profile and the support base for the parties are um, different in nuance and in location and in emphasis. And so whilst it's not necessarily a civil war thing about being in favor or not of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921, it still is a really important moment in Irish politics that the two parties are governing together. On the Sinn Féin question, I think the questioner picks up on a really important uh, issue, which was after the February general election, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael refused to speak with Sinn Féin, um, despite some pressure, especially within Fianna Fáil, to not do that and to open up discussions, at least to open up a dialogue with the parties. So I think you can, this can certainly be seen as a pragmatic response eventually to the global pandemic, but indeed it was also a pragmatic response in the uh, initial aftermath of the elections to try and keep Sinn Féin out of government. And I'm going to conclude on just one thing, which I think is interesting for people who watch European or uh, global politics in any event. What we're seeing in Ireland is a realignment that isn't just about the, the civil war, but it's actually about, in some respects, left and right or progressive and conservative.
I know plenty of people, and especially Fianna Fáil, who would be disappointed in my labelling them as a Conservative Party. It's more complicated than that. Uh, but they do sit with the centrist group in the European Parliament, for example. And what we're seeing is the old Conservative parties coalescing in government and Sinn Féin really building this kind of platform for a progressive leftist alternative. And we know that that's been absent from Irish politics historically. There hasn't been this traditional left-right divide. There's been something peculiar to Ireland originating in the Civil War. So that will be my remarks with respect to the uh, reasons why this government coalesced. Great. Thanks, Barry. Oh, Noel, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just, uh, Barry has perfectly uh, uh, summed it up there. But if I could just add, um, just in terms of, you know, the, the symbolism of it absolutely is, is one thing. Um, and equally, I think the challenges of getting a program for government, getting that coalition together against the backdrop of the COVID pandemic um, was, was certainly interesting. But one thing that we obviously, from a European Movement Ireland perspective, but other organizations and other or people looking at, um, a fact that might have got somewhat uh, lost in the annals of, of the, uh, the election, which seems like another lifetime ago, uh, back in February, was the turnout. And the turnout for the 2020 election here in Ireland uh, this, this, this year was at 62.9%, which is quite low. Um, and it's how do we, uh, and Barry touched upon it uh, uh, very, very um, elegantly, but how do we mobilize and get people um, interested in politics to come out to vote and have their say, notwithstanding um, the... Um, you know, whichever the political parties are, but I think that voter activation, voter mobilization is something that we are going to to have to ha have a look at and, and, and continue to inform and encourage um, encourage uh, voters to to gen up on the issues that matter to them so that we see an, an increased turnout, not just for the times of referenda, but during elections as well. Great, uh, thanks. And I, and Noel, I mean, my my own research, um, you know, before I came to Boston College, was on uh, was on the political language and the conflict in Northern Ireland. And you know, one thing that Sinn Fein always did really well was engage its voters and and help to ensure that its voters kind of got out and and participated. Um, and I think they're they're you know the party is quite a quite a professional one and and really well organized. Um, so I think there are, uh, you know, I, I think that's going to be interesting in, in how it plays out the, the point you made about um, kind of low voter turnout there. Uh, you know, Botan, I'd like to turn to you for um, some of the issues that, that you raised. We have been talking a little bit about uh, the impact Brexit has on uh, Europe as, as um, the UK leaves. Uh, we talked about it briefly in terms of um, the, the frugal four, or frugal five, frugal one, however you want to term it, that there is this concept that uh, with the UK out, uh, other states now are going to have to voice their, their opposition. We also, you also raised the, the challenges around security um, and uh, this, you know, the UK is deep involved in, 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 a, in the five eyes and the US security alliance. And now they're, they're, they're not in the European alliance and, and kind of the impacts that are, are going to um, play out there uh, in their relationship uh, with China. I mean, do you, you know, kind of taking this one step further, does Brexit open a possibility, do you think, you know, for other states either to enter or leave as Europe and European nation states change? There was a question from one of the audience members about 
Scotland um, and uh, you know this idea that you know Scotland might leave the UK and then seek to re-enter uh, the European Union and you might have some similar practices in other parts of of Europe how do you read this um, nation state uh, you know these changes across Europe and and what it means to con European uh, cohesion and, and policy this is a great question and uh, and I could you know burn the rest of the time of the panel but um, as I'm coming from Hungary you know that we have uh, Hungarian minorities in all the surrounding states um, in Slovakia Romania uh, and and to go on uh, in the South Balkan um, and and the Hungarian experience has been always the same that uh, to work with the minorities is extremely difficult uh, inside the EU so I'm not seeing any chance of opening up uh, for um, any fragmentation in the close future as Madrid has shown the example uh, with Catalonia um, we know that some not very strong movements are in France uh, but also in Italy, or just to make the example of Belgium itself, Wallonia and Flanders, uh, the, the two strong parts of the, of the country uh, where the North is ready to, to break away, uh, usually from the, from the kingdom. Um, so Scotland is not alone uh, in its, uh, in its uh, thought experience, but I would say that uh, the current political structure is not about to break up. On the other hand, what we have been discussing already for some time in political science as well as in, in Brussels corridors, uh, is how to is how to create an upper house for the European Parliament through the regions. Uh, so that's a really interesting and I would say very useful idea to bring back the local people's voice, uh, regions, municipalities, whatsoever, in a much stronger way than currently the Committee of the Region uh, does. We need that. Uh, so that would be something uh, which is not helping the Scotland issue. Uh, but would have definitely uh, to, to offer a stronger voice uh, for local regions. And I guess that's the future of the EU, to redistribute the competencies of the European Union in a much more 21st century way. Um, so it's not that we need um, uh, all the commercial things that was needed for the single market in the 80s, uh, when, when services and online tools are there. Uh, we need very different things and uh, foreign policy fiscal and monetary policy should be there with defense and foreign policy. So that's, that's the thing that we miss. And um, well, the political language is not always helping it. Uh, as we were just using without much reflection uh, the expressions of net beneficiaries and net contributors uh, as the member states uh, usually classify them in these two categories. Uh, this is actually just a very narrow political narrative. Uh, while we note that the largest net contributors are actually economically benefiting much, much more um, to, uh, from the Uni European Union uh, common single market uh, than some other countries. Uh, and there is also the question, which is an excellent example, uh, the question of the tax justice and how actually that is working out amongst the EU member states. Uh, and we know that one of the largest corporate tax havens is the Netherlands. Um, I must say that um, Ireland is also up, uh, up for this title in some of the rankings. In the 2016 Oxfam ranking, globally, Ireland made a sixth place. Um, but uh, the Netherlands definitely is there um, always. And uh, even Ireland lost some money to the Netherlands, uh, according to the Tax Justice Network research. Uh, it's about the 200, billion, 200 millions. 
Um, so that's also something, you know, that the consolidated tax codes is something that we should again begin with. Uh, and and uh, when I discuss with politicians in Brussels, the insight, and I would close my remarks here, the insight that they offer is that if you touch one piece of this construction, actually you realize that you have to touch all the other pieces. So if you touch on tax consolidation, you need to talk about social security, then you need to talk about employment and employment legislation. And it is just no one is for the time being having the political courage or leadership uh, to begin with that. And um, well, I just hope that all the external pressures might create a momentum for that. Uh, thanks, Botan. Um, Barry, Noel, I mean, how do you see uh, the, this particular issue uh, of tax uh, playing out in, in Ireland's relationship to the European Union and in Irish politics? We were talking in the run-up to this about the importance of political culture um, and the, the regional differences, whereas, you know, tax is an important issue um, in Ireland. Uh, you know, maybe identity and, and immigration and movement of people is, is more important in, in some of the Eastern European um, states. But in particular with this issue, where do you see it going? Um, Noelle, is this going to be an issue, you think, for Ireland? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it is, uh, Bob, and I think uh, Bhutan has touched up, uh, upon it there. And it, it's obviously a key focus. Um, and in terms of the Irish government, um, you know, I guess the uh, Ireland has obviously signed up to the OECD, the BEPS process, and would be firmly of the view that tax—it's—it's um, it's not just uh, something that should be uh, tackled at a European level. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a global issue. Um, and given the strong foreign direct investment uh, contribution here in Ireland, you know, given the fact that we've over 150,000 uh, people working here, for example, uh, people in Ireland um, in U.S. companies. Equally, there's about 100,000 people in uh, in the states working in Irish-based companies throughout the throughout throughout America. Um, how Ireland is going to um, is going to navigate the the tax issue is going to assume more and more importance, but at, but equally at an EU level, but also at a global level, because it's it's just it can't be tackled alone. I think um, at at the EU, and that is something that Ireland has been particularly uh, strong on. But what we have seen at a at a national level and and across the different member states is uh, a a growing demand for a fairer and more transparent and more equitable. Uh, tax system and how we go about that is where the challenges are. And as as Bhutan said. Um, you know, from an Irish perspective, and I always uh, find it interesting to try and um, explain it to our our international amb ambassadors. They they ask me, why is this Ireland's red line uh, issue? Why you know defending your corporate tax rate, giving up the veto, and the fact of the matter is, it it has remained. It has remained that. Um, in our in our in our poll again, only seventeen percent of people in Ireland felt that we should give up the veto. Um, on tax at a, at a European level, but there is a demand and there is a recognition that we need more collaboration, more resolution. But how we pivot that from from a European to an international level, given that a lot of these uh, international companies are 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 based in the US, is is something that is not going to be easy. But um, I, I I think momentum uh, momentum is building, and I think Ireland 
is is of the view that it, it wants to constructively engage in that while safeguarding our right to set our own tax rates and equally continue to attract uh, foreign direct investment. I can make one really short remark, Bob, if I may. I know we're very much against the clock, but just to make one point building on what Noel just said, that one of the peculiarities of domestic politics in Ireland is the consensus from parties of the hard right to the hard left in support of our uh, relatively low corporate tax rates. So in the domestic political context, there's almost no argument. But the one point I want to make, and I briefly touched on it, was that with the UK's departure, Ireland is obviously losing a, uh, an ally with respect to uh, its liberal corporate tax regime. So that is something to watch in the future also. Great. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Noel. Um, I just have one final uh, question, maybe very quick, rapid answer, because we are uh, at about an hour. We want to respect everyone's time. I know everyone's busy. It's evening as well. Um, a summer's evening in Ireland and, and in Europe will let you um, uh, retire uh, very soon. Maybe, Botan, we could start with you. Um, I'm speaking to you from the Global Leadership Institute at Boston College. Um, you are from a leadership program, a Jesuit leadership program that focuses on Europe. And, and this question is for all the panelists. What is the single most critical leadership issue uh, or capacity that the European Union must confront over the next, next five years? Well, um, I believe that with the youth unemployment rising with an extremely rapid pace uh, in the last three months because of the COVID um, depression coming on us, uh, we will face a political question how best to integrate the voice of the youth into the politics, also at the Brussels level as well as on a very local level. And that's currently unsolved. So either they go radical or, um, or, or they are outside of the mainstream politics or, or they go um, not even in the, in the public uh, discussions. And that's something that we need to channel uh, very quickly. Otherwise, uh, an explosion is almost unavoidable, uh, speaking politically um, on, on our future elections. And uh, there are elections to watch in the next years to, uh, to see uh, the impact of that. So we are also working, the Jesuit European Social Center is running a leadership program, the European leadership program for youth coming to town, usually for the first time in their life uh, as a postgraduate uh, to take up a traineeship position. So during that five months with all the Jesuit uh, inspired leadership principles, we try to explain them how best to stay in town and how to see that as a mission, as a life mission uh, to work with for uh, inside the EU um, and, and to keep this uh, peace vehicle uh, integrated for the next years. Great. It is a, um, a difficult time, I think, for Jesuit institutions. We are designed to confront the world's most pre pressing problems, um, and they seem to have piled up um, of late. So, um, you know, where do you begin? Uh, but thank you. Um, Barry, and then maybe uh, we can wrap up with Noel. Great, I'll be super brief. I'll echo what Botan said. I think that's uh, absolutely well informed and proper. I'll talk more generally and briefly about just the response to COVID as it plays out that I think EU watchers would have learned from the unseemly playing out of how we resolved the social and economic crises in Greece in 2015 and then with the migration crisis or how we didn't resolve it. I would just say that uh, a, a consistent and united approach to helping countries carry the burden, the inevitable burden of the fallout of COVID is the single most important thing the EU has to do. 
Absolutely. Um, it's a little bit, Bob, if I could have a T-shirt with two arrows going, what, what Barry and Botan said. <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think the the fundamental goal and objective of, of, of us all and, and, and of the most more specifically will be to uh, ensure that we navigate a recovery out of uh, the pandemic that protects and safeguards the uh, the future to be to be more sustainable to be fairer um, and and that we take on board the the lessons and 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 the learnings and the experience and the uh, and and the challenges that that we have faced in this time Great. Well, thank you, everybody. I really appreciate you taking the uh, the time to to speak to our audience about uh, the European Union, Ireland, and and global crossings. There's an interesting period ahead, not just for Ireland and the EU, but there's a period of political change coming here in the United States as we prepare for our presidential um, election. And um, and anybody kind of uh, can guess at this point which way that can go. Of course, uh, if you follow politics, you'll be following the polls. Um, but, um, you know, over recent history, uh, polling has not been uh, particularly accurate. So uh, there's a lot to play out here in the United States and how our internal politics will um, have an, an imp a significant impact on how we uh, interact with um, our, our global partners. Uh, I want to encourage the audience, um, of course, to, to reach out to Noel and, and Barry and Botan. They're easily uh, kind of lo locatable on uh, social media and you can find them from uh, the promotional material from from this program. I'm sure they'd be happy to, to engage with you. It's really my pleasure to have, have spoken um, to each of you. You uh, have provided some really interesting insight. And um, I hope we can follow up in, in a year's time and um, discuss the outcomes of the U.S. presidential election on um, EU and, and, and Irish relationships. I uh, thank you very much, everybody. And uh, we hope to see you shortly again in the near future. Take care. Bye -bye. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today as we work to enhance Boston College's presence and impact in the world by building trust, community, and dialogue. Please visit our website at bc.edu for more information on today's speakers and follow us on Twitter at GLIATBC or find us on LinkedIn at Global Leadership Institute at Boston College.